It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. All right, welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. This is Chester Moore, and I'm very honored. And, you know, I'm very, it's a very, it's a privilege to have this next guest on. We have Mr. Macy Ledbetter. He is a biologist with Spring Creek Outdoors. He's been out surveying all the damage done from the freeze situation we had here a couple of weeks ago in Texas. Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. Thank you, Chester. It's an honor to be here. You know, I was blown away by your presentation at the Texas Outdoor Riders Association Banquet in Port Arthur, and uh, you dug into a ton of issues regarding wildlife in Texas. But kind of the now issue is the result of this freeze event. I mean, of course, we've been covering it on higher calling Gulf Coast in terms of the freeze kills in the Gulf waters. But there's also been an impact all across Texas in hoofstock. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and of course, the hoofstock live in the brush big pastures mm-hmm. this is kind of outside of survey season so we really had a lot of guessing you know we, we might find one or two animals but we really didn't know how widespread it really was because again they're wild animals and they're not easily found so i went for a uh, went for a search this earlier this week i went down to the uh, coast uh, just kind of north of raymondville south of kingsville if you would on some of those larger ranches on the east side of highway 77 really look for myself i had heard rumor i'd heard people kind of third party information talking about it uh but i was blessed to have a couple of client ranches where i you know made a few phone calls and was invited down and i spent three days driving all over the pasture Mm -hmm. if we smelled something then we get out of the truck and start walking Mm -hmm. uh, and see what we found and so we we covered about fifteen thousand acres in great detail Mm -hmm. of Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, actually. Uh, just just got back yesterday. And so Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we spent a lot of time, energy, and effort walking and driving and sniffing, if you would, sniffing the yeah. air and, and investigating, you know, what you don't want to find. You, you'd smell it. You know, we're riding around with the windows down, and it's like, oh, crap. You know, I smell something. You know, stop, back up. Uh-oh, there it is. You know, there's the wind direction. And we'd grab our camera, grab our, uh, you know, data recording stuff, and we'd take off nose pointed into the wind and usually we wouldn't have to go very far just follow your nose and sure enough there there was most often a nil guy mm-hmm. at the cause of that smell now we did find a handful of white-tailed deer okay this particular ranch had some other exotics like water buck uh eland antelope mm-hmm. and even a few black buck antelope so we did find a uh an array of animals, but the vast majority of what we found were, were Nilgai antelope. Well, you know, and it's so, really interesting you know, I, on the Nilgai point because um, I was concerned about the Nilgai. I mean, people listening don't know there's a free-ranging population of Nilgai, as well as ones behind game-proof fences, and that's mainly down south of that Baffin Bay corridor in Texas. They were brought there in the 1930s, and I found a study from 72-73 winter. They were like... 1500 lost and it estimated the population was around three or four thousand and so that was an animal that i was concerned about because of their kind of notorious ability not to weather extra strong winters that's right and, and that's kind of why they're confined to that area mm-hmm. 
people will get a little lackadaisical and, and, and they will trap those animals there and put them in a trailer and bring them north. Mm-hmm. And typically they don't survive. Uh, you know, nothing as historic as this recent outbreak, but even a, a mild winter mm-hmm. or what you and I would consider a mild winter or, or just, a, you know, maybe one or two nights below freezing. And that pretty much stops that migration north. So naturally occurring, like you said, low fence, open range, those animals don't get much further than Kingsville, Texas, uh, specifically almost uh, Rivera, if you're familiar Rivera, with that yeah. area. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, it's, it's due to the weather. Um, so, so like I said, there's been some guys catch them, put them in trailers, and bring them to Kerrville, bring them to Central Texas. Um, but that's usually a short-lived project, and it's in a very expensive educational project as well. I can imagine. You know, they're they're wonderful. My favorite wild game meat is actually an eel guy. I think it's a really fine meat, and they're very popular for that. A cool animal to hunt and a unique animal. And it's always fascinating to me, you know, like there must be that weather thing because you think an animal that's been as successful as it has where it is would have already gone much, much further, like all that have and, you know, all these other animals, but uh, confined down there. So with this historical freeze, what kind of damage do you think you've seen done in terms of proportion of the population? On this particular ranch, we did have pre-freeze survey data. Well, that's good. Where we, yeah, yeah we, we counted, you know, one nil guy per 19 acres, Okay. for example. So we, we did a grid system across the property, counted the nil guy, divided it by the acreage, and it, it indicated that of what we observed, we had one nil guy per mm-hmm. 19 acres, okay. you know, distributed throughout the property. And so we had that, that population data. And then we spent, you know, again, the three days looking and counting dead animals. And so we estimated, to the best of our ability, we lost about 8% of that population. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I know we didn't find every animal, but, sure. but we did cover that acreage very, very thorough. And we used the wind and, you know, the observing scavenger birds at great distances with binoculars. So, again, I, I know we didn't see every one, but I, I really... According to the math, according to the data, it was 8%. So if somebody says, you know, well, we may have lost 10%, I'm not even going to argue with that. You sure. know, but it, it was not anything like, you know, a, a third or, or, or half of the population. It, it was a small percentage. And luckily, Nilga typically have twins mm-hmm. when they're born. And so when you, you suffer, a you know, say an 8 to 10% loss, that really means one good birthing year certainly two average years, you'll bounce back. So, yes, it was terrible and horrific to find that many dead animals, that good quality quality type of animal laying there dead. But also as a biologist, I know that we're one good spring rain or we're two average summers away from rebounding. So that's the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Sure. That's the, the, the silver lining, if you would. So die-offs are terrible. Uh, to witness and document, but luckily at an 8 to 10% impact, they're going to bounce right back. You know, uh, a lot of pictures circulating on the internet of like truckloads of axis deer, a lot of black buck antelopes shown. And you and I had a discussion at the TOWA conference that um, that some of these particular situations could be where maybe they're in pastures and stuff like that. Is the cover and the management of any of these properties a factor in mortality in something like this? Oh, yes, sir. It's a huge factor. So, mm-hmm. 
So any of these animals, whether it be the Nilgai or the Axis or the Black Buck or the Audad or even the white-tailed deer, if they if they went into this historic freeze event in a stressed or nutritionally challenged mm-hmm. condition, then obviously they they showed up with a with a disadvantage. Okay, and then. So, so physically they were disadvantaged because maybe it was, you know, too much competition, not enough nutrition, however you want to look at that glass, mm-hmm. whether it's half empty or half full. But if those animals were physically slash nutritionally stressed and then you had less than ideal habitat, that's where you saw the large scale die-offs. Mm-hmm. So typically when you have too many animals of, of anything, it could be cows or donkeys or emus, if you had too many for that native range to support, which means now those animals are nutritionally and physically stressed, that also means the habitat's likely in the same condition. Mm-hmm. So, so stressed habitat and stressed animals with a record-setting Arctic cold front blast never ends well. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously on those properties that, again, had too many animals or they had stressed habitat, we saw a greater impact of the die-off. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, you know, because of, uh, you know, this time of year stressful on animals anyway. So uh, being able to have the right nutrition, supplemental feeding, some of those kind of things and good cover would make sense in a in a really heavy winter event. You know, uh, out of curiosity, any of your surveys, I know obviously probably weren't any down in the Kingsville area around there. But have you heard in the hill country of any odd dad dying in this? I have. Yes, sir. I sure have, mm-hmm. especially in the Rock Springs, the Brackettville area, kind mm-hmm. of the. I guess the western part of the Edwards Plateau. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, some, some ranches they, they declare war on cedar, uh, ash juniper to be more specific. And yep. so, you know, some landlords say, "I want to get rid of every cedar tree on my ranch." Well, as a biologist and a habitat manager, I I kind of throw up my hands and call time out. So, well, you know, let, let's don't just remove it because it's there. Let's sculpt the habitat. Let's remove it in areas that we can get some benefit for its removal, but also we need to leave some of it there for, for protection, mm-hmm. both shade in the summertime when it's 110 degrees. That's yeah, good cover. Cedar is, is a great great cover. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have the, the hail events. So if you're a bird or a small mammal, you know, mm-hmm. you need physical overhead protection from the hailstones. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, we have ice and, and, and a terribly strong north wind. You need a windbreak or a shelter. And, and cedar offers all of that. Mm-hmm. So so cedar is not just public enemy number one. It should be down on the list of, you know, hey, I'll clear it where I can get something in return, whether it be grasses or quality browse plants. But in those areas where I can't, so it's real rocky, it's real steep slope, or mm-hmm. there's basically no soil at all, and the cedar's growing there, that, that, that very well could be your saving grace. That very well could be your best friend. Mm-hmm. And, and of the Neil guy that we saw this week that were dead, every one of them, Chester, were on the south side of either a thicket, a brush mont, or a clump of, let's just say, tall standing grass. Mm-hmm. Every one of those dead Neil guys tried their best to avoid the weather. They, they, they you know, took the wind. They tried to, to get out of the wind. They yeah. were on the south side of, of some thicket. They were in tall grass, and they usually had something overhead, whether it be a mesquite tree or a bush that leaned out, you know, a little further. So, so those nail guy that did perish, they tried their best. They they mm-hmm. used everything they had to their advantage, to, you know, everything they could use. They tried it, 
and of course some of them failed. And again, with eight eight to ten percent mortality, I consider that a win. But it's also a great educational tool for habitat managers, landowners, sure. biologists. Is is what these animals need to, to survive when you know when when the cards turn against them and and we can't predict the weather, but we can. You and I can predict and educate and manage the habitat. So. Again, the silver lining to all of this bad news is is the animals taught us something if we would pay attention. They showed us what they needed when when the chips got down. Yeah. So again, going back to cedar trees in the hill country, mm-hmm. uh, just just a clear cedar to clear cedar is not advisable. These animals need shade, they need shelter, they need a windbreak, and they need cover. And I can't think of a better plant in central texas that offers all of that than the cedar for sure definitely better than mesquite trees in terms of cover uh absolutely absolutely you know live oak could be in there but Mm -hmm. most of your live oaks have a browse line yep so there's not a whole lot of a windbreak there it's great overhead protection Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know from from hail and 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 wind and rain but it it doesn't offer ground level protection Mm -hmm. that that little tree stumps pretty pretty narrow and so it doesn't offer much of a windbreak but but cedar offers all of that so i'd I'd like to encourage your listeners to reconsider reevaluate the value of a cedar tree when there's no other alternatives again like shallow soil steep terrain uh really rocky areas you probably don't need to get in there with a bulldozer and mess that up anyway Mm -hmm. you know aesthetically you're going to make a mess and, and chances are whatever comes back is not going to be as good and valuable as a cedar tree. That's really interesting because you always heard cedar villainized so much because of how much water it taps and those kind of things. But you're right, especially in those shallow areas. I spent a lot of time out in Edwards and Rial County out there in those rocky canyons and stuff. You know, it's pretty much what you've got, you know. And um, every time you go through those, you'll kick up an Audad or an Axis or something that's down in those places in the wintertime. And, and speaking of that, just for maybe someone's listening, maybe they have small acreage and they've never consulted a biologist on their exotics and things like that. Uh, do you think there's sometimes kind of a mentality, hey, I've got some opportunity to, to buy this. I just plop up a high fence and some feeders and it's okay. Do you think habitat is sometimes neglected by the landowner? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They've got a, a brother-in-law deal. It's a firestorm sale. They, yeah. They've got these, you know, quote, great deal on animals. So I'm just going to buy them mm-hmm. because they're thinking of financial or, or maybe even emotional. I want to go help my brother-in-law out. You know, he's in a bind, so I'm going to buy these animals from him to help him out with little or no consideration of, you know, I've got to feed them. Mm-hmm. I've got to take care of them. I've got to protect them and what additional stress those new animals are going to have on my existing population mm-hmm. of animals and existing habitat. So, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, that happens too often. And and so then we learn our lesson maybe a year later, six months later, when something bad happens, mm-hmm. or you look out there and there's now a browse line to where you kind of thought there was previously, but now you added those 10 or 15 new animals, and mm-hmm. overnight the browse line becomes very obvious now you're in trouble you know once it becomes obvious to yourself that hey it looks like i've got too many animals well that that ship has done sales you know yeah. when, when it's the signs are that obvious then the damage has been done long ago and unfortunately even if you went out there and removed those 
surplus animals. Now it's going to take longer for that habitat to bounce back. So mm-hmm. it may have taken a couple of years to, to get in that poor condition, but it's going to take much, much longer for that poor condition to heal itself and recover. Yeah. And what we're hoping here in this broadcast is that um, maybe you would consider consulting a biologist like Macy Ledbetter here with Spring Creek Outdoors and be able to assess your land and maybe say, hey, I had, a, and I had an event here, realize the habitat, nutritional part wasn't right. Let's do something different. It's always a positive. Now, I've got a couple other questions about the impact we haven't talked about. I'm assuming that absolutely zero feral hogs died in this freak. <laughs> I'm not aware of any dying, <laughs> so I, I agree with you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I think you're probably right, as much as I hate to agree with that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're the, the last thing I think that's going to be left standing, them and the cockroaches, you know, when, I the, agree. when the world gets leveled. <laughs> when the freeze happened, we got uh, all of a sudden pigs are in the neighborhood, like that day, and I'm like, you can't wow. kill these things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're adjusting, adapting, and overcoming. You know, they, yeah, they come to the neighborhood to eat the grass or whatever. That's but, it. Yeah, way back in 2011, mm-hmm. you know, we had just the opposite of this Arctic cold front. We had a historic drought. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, water sources basically disappeared and plants were dying. Trees were dying. Mm-hmm. It, it was, you know, it, it was the opposite, but it was a similar natural disaster, if you would. And I spent a lot of time on ranches and in helicopters and really taking, trying to take better care of the native habitat and the native animals. And what we found is the, the feral hogs didn't die. The only advantage is that female, instead of having 10 to 12 little ones, she had four to six. Hmm. So she still reproduced. She just took better care of the ones she had. Yeah. So, you know, when times are good, she, she might have 10 or 12 with the idea of, okay, I can lose a couple and still be successful. Yeah. You know, still still end up with a, a baker's dozen or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the drought, she didn't have 10 or 12. She somehow elected to have four to six, and she raised them all because she was able to control them and take care of the fewer. Mm-hmm. And so the, the overall numbers did decline, but the survivability, I, I didn't see a change mm-hmm. in the survivability. So, so she raised to say 100% of the babies, yeah. whereas in good times, she might only raise 85%. So it, it was amazing that I, w- I was thinking, okay, we're, you know, this is going to be the greatest news for, mm-hmm. for feral hogs. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. That's so instead of having 12 babies, she had six, but she raised all six. And, and in 2012 and 2013 were wet years, and the feral hog population in Texas mm-hmm. absolutely exploded. Actually, 12, 13, and 14 were good rainfall years. Uh, you know, post post drought, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people had the ability during 2011 when the ponds went dry. A lot of proactive managers cleaned those ponds out. You know, brought in the bulldozers and the heavy equipment, mm-hmm. enlarged them, improved them, and cleaned them out. So now, most ranches have ponds that have not been dry since 2011 because they were able to clean out, improve, mm-hmm. reconstruct those ponds that went dry in 2011. And ever since then, because that pond now is 10 foot deeper and new terraces and much wider watershed, those ponds have not been dry since 2011. Mm-hmm. So Mama Feral Hog now has a more consistent, reliable water source that she didn't have in 2011. She had to travel. She had to scramble for water. 
Well, now that very same property, she doesn't have to travel, doesn't have to scramble because the managers improved those water sources from that lesson learned. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a bad lesson that you let the water go dry because your pond had too much silt or your terraces hadn't been maintained in the last generation. Mm-hmm. Maybe the generation prior to you built those terraces and, and you just kind of out of sight, out of mind, and you've let the brush encroach on those terraces. So they weren't able to catch and hold and redirect water. So in 2011, you lost all that, and it kind of opened your eyes, and you said, I have to do better in my watershed management. So you go in and spend the money and improve it. And since that time, because 2011 hasn't been very, you know, just, just a decade ago, that's not a generation, that's just a decade. So that, that cohort of landowners, land managers, ranch managers still remember it vividly. So we haven't gone long enough for them to forget it. But this cold weather hasn't happened ever like, like it had, or it hadn't happened in so long. I think the big, the, the, the most recent big cold front was 1983, mm-hmm. the one that, you know, killed a lot of Neil Guy and also killed a lot of the citrus groves in the valley. Yeah, so, so from 1983 to 2021, that is a generational difference. So these things do occur in somewhat of a pattern. Mm-hmm. It may be a decade pattern. It may be a generational pattern. But like this, this educational moment we can get from these nil guy of how they must have protection overhead and shade and, and north wind block, man, we, we cannot forget those things. Even if it's a, a generational thing, we should document it with science, with photographs, but carry, carry that torch to the next generation mm-hmm. of managers and biologists and say, look what happened. Don't let your guard down. Don't let this happen to you. You know, don't be a 2011 casualty or a 2021 casualty. So even though it was one was heat-related and one was cold-related, it's still Mother Nature. It's still a, something that we as managers can't control, but we can help prevent or we can reduce the severity of the impact. So mm-hmm. as managers, as biologists, as as talk show as journalists as, as all of the people that you and i deal with and work with that mm-hmm. that should be a responsibility that both you personally and i personally have is to carry that knowledge and experience to the next generation and show and tell them don't let this sneak up on you you know we, we've been there done that we've lived through it now don't let it happen to you Kind of a final thing I'm curious about here is you, know, you mentioned the cyclical patterns with feral hogs. What about predators? Right. In a situation like this where all of a sudden in the in this more stressful time of year, there's a bunch more dead stuff on the ground, a bunch of meat during a, a couple of weeks, a month period. Uh, is there possible something like this can make a boon in co- boom in coyote populations on properties that have no predator control? Absolutely. And, and, and that relationship is predator-prey relationship. So mm-hmm. as, as the, the prey items go up mm-hmm. then six months later the predator population goes up mm-hmm. accordingly and then same thing as the prey items go down then six months later the pop uh, the predator population goes down so it's a it's a, a tail wagging the dog kind of a kind of a relationship and so you're right there's dead animals all over the landscape so these predatory animals as long as they don't mind scavenging which none of them really do mm-hmm. both avian and, and four-legged uh, they're, they're going to do quite well mm-hmm. and most of them are breeding right now for yep. example That's coyotes mm-hmm. you know they're, they're breeding right now and so you you have a smorgasbord of dead animals all over the landscape and so they're they're in fine fashion you know they're, they're sitting in, in a good position if you're you know a coyote or or a you know a scavenger you 
it, it's a buffet out there right now. So mm-hmm. I think you're exactly correct. Even though we may have lost some smaller meso mammals, whether it be raccoons and skunks and possums, all the way down to the cotton rat and the, the field mice, we may have lost a lot of those. What they lost in small prey items, they picked up in scavenging opportunities from livestock and axis deer and black buck and nilgai. So I think you're exactly right. We're going to see a boom in coyote, possibly fox, possibly bobcat populations mm-hmm. this later this spring, earlier this summer, because of the abundant forage supply, meat supply that's all over the pasture. Yeah, my thoughts were, well, this is perfect. This is a time coyotes are going to be breeding or getting pregnant and healthy mamas, you know, maybe be able to produce more young, maybe more young survive, that kind of thing. And I don't think that's people necessarily, they'll see their dead axis deer, the nil guy or whatever, but they don't think there's another side of that cycle of life out there that's taking advantage and could even be benefiting somewhat from a situation like this. Yes, sir. You're exactly correct. I agree with you. Very interesting stuff. And I tell you what, I'd love to have you back on later to talk more wildlife issues, but we appreciate this update. Thank you for your heart for wildlife and conservation and for what you do. And um, if anyone wants to maybe get a hold of you for your services for Spring Creek Outdoors, how do they do that? Thank you, Chester. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and share with the listeners. You can find me at springcreekoutdoors.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram by the same name, Spring Creek Outdoors. All right. We appreciate your time, Macy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, sir. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at Chester at ChesterMoore.com. Follow him at the Chester Moore on Instagram and his blog at HigherCalling.net.